I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. everyone and welcome back. I am so deeply excited about this episode we have on today, Dr. Liz Cohen. And Liz is going to discuss in this episode how the field of trauma research is changing and helping us to understand more about neuroplasticity and the rewiring that happens to our brains from ongoing small T traumas that we may not have thought were impacting us as much as they are. Childhood situations where our needs were regularly unmet can result in responses which are more likely to be chronic than even a big T trauma. Do you find yourself in patterns with your partner or your kids that you can't seem to get out of? This episode is for you. We will dissect how to get to know and understand our survival mechanisms and break those patterns. Dr. Cohen also shares great insights on how she combines clinical psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, and somatics in her work, what she does in a session when she doesn't know what to do next, and what we are likely to see if we don't take the time to deeply feel and reflect upon what happened in last year the last years with the COVID crisis. Dr. Cohen is a clinical psychologist. She's the author of Light at the Other Side of Divorce, Discovering the New You. She's the CEO and founder of the online divorce course and membership Afterglow, The Light at the Other Side of Divorce. She is also CEO of the Center of CBT in NYC. Dr. Cohen received her PhD in clinical psychology from Boston University She's the recipient of the prestigious American Psychological Foundation Research Award for her research on the emotional effects of 9-11. She's been featured on Tamron Hall Show, Wall Street Journal, NBC News, on and on. Uh, she's a regular contributor to psychology today with her divorce course column, and she has her own podcast, which is a big hit to people's divorce stories, and it receives many, 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 many downloads. I started this episode off different than usual. You'll hear Liz and I just in casual conversation, reconnecting. She um, was also a yoga student of mine for many, many years, about a, a whole decade. And so you'll see how we're connecting on some different levels. Okay, here we go. I'm so inspired by you as I'm making this, well, getting my higher education. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited for you. I think it'll be really a wonderful experience for you. And as I, I said in the recommendations, I mean, you've already been doing this work. It's just, I think it'll, you know, you'd really benefit from under, you know, maybe getting more theory, but it's not like emotionally, you know, you need any more, <laughs> you need any more guidance. So I just feel like you've already been doing this work and you certainly helped me move through things. And certainly through COVID, I mean, that was so 
so incredibly powerful. I really appreciate that, Liz, as I'm like, I feel that inside. Mm-hmm. You know, I just finished this somatic attachment certification course. Who taught that class? Dr. Maureen Gallagher. Oh yeah. I know her. That's who I did somatic experiencing training with. Yeah. You did. And Scott Lyons was also there. Oh, wow. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Did you like Maureen? I did. I did. Yeah. And I, so I was sitting there thinking I did the certification. It was 60 hours. Wow. And I was thinking maybe I should go for the whole somatic experiencing, right? Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there looking at it and I'm like, you know what? Because I've done a lot of certifications in the last year, uh, last couple of years with, since COVID. And I'm like, you know, I think what I really needing and wanting to do is actually go get my master's. Mm-hmm. And then I can, you know, always consider to do more of that somatic work. But I'm like to really advance myself and... Yeah, that I need more of, like you were saying, maybe more theory and like Mm -hmm. diagnostic keys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then from that, you can, I mean, there'll just be such a more wide variety of courses that you'll see what you're drawn to. Yeah. I think I learned a lot from the 60 hours and, you know, just also remembering. It's like remembering in the body that like being in presence with someone is the most beautiful thing that we can do. Right. And you do that so naturally. I mean, that's the piece also that I feel like maybe it's just melding the two parts for you, but like you sat with us all the time in physical space at the studio and over zoom, like you always held space. That was something I could always feel in the, you know, always in the room. So you do that naturally. So I feel like getting the theory and and just getting like, also just maybe, I don't know, this is your own psychology, but like feeling the like grounding in it, like that you really belong there because people, yes, you know, like that's right. Like it's a lot about that. Yeah, totally. And that's yeah. important. Like, <laughs> yeah, with the book coming out, it's like, you know, right. and I'm going to courses that I'm like, I could be speaking at these or teaching them, but totally. I think not until I get that next level of education. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. I mean, coming from you, (laughs) and this is about, I want to talk about you. I mean, but coming from you, that means so much because you are, you know, you're a doctor. I think you're the first doctor on my podcast. Oh, yay. I'm so happy to be. I actually just got a really um, lovely note from my mom that she saw some, it's a graduation today and she saw some like doctoral graduates and it reminded her of when I got mine. And I was just kind of reflecting on that because it's such a intense time that you don't, I talk about being mindful. It just wasn't really present to, um, what a huge accomplishment that was. So still that's something I like a growing edge for me is owning my own power and abundance. Yeah. As I'm like going toward the masters, I'm and thinking, you know, maybe I'll do that one day. Like maybe I'll go all the way for the and um it also hit me. I'm like, wow, Liz is a doctor. Like she went, she got her doctorate. That's major accomplishment. I know. I know. I <laughs> yeah. So it really is. So I'm trying to take it in all the time. So I appreciate it. it's funny because people will say, like, when I'm on a podcast or you know, what you know, do you want me to call you Elizabeth? And I always say, please call me Dr. Cohen mostly for myself so that I can, you know, like just to own that of like, I think there's something a little minimizing of like, just call me Liz. You know what I mean? Like whatever you can call me, whatever you want, because you're my friend, but like, you know, and I, I think it's important. And those are the little moments of like accessing 
my power that I, that I try to do that I used to not do. Such a good lesson for all of us. And Mm -hmm. I will call you Dr. Cohen while we're here today. Cause I, like I said, I was really thinking about it and wanting to like, yeah, to really state that I think you're, I have to, to look, but I think you're the first doctor that we had on the podcast. And I think that's important. And like you said as well, we're friends and I've taught mm-hmm. you yoga. And so we've shared space in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And um, there's lots to talk about. I think because, you know, because you're a doctor and a psychiatrist and an expert in this field, and because this podcast is mainly about trauma, mm-hmm. I would love to get your take on how you define trauma and if you see any differentiation between like big T trauma and little T trauma and how they show up in our lives. Definitely. Thanks so much for asking me this question and welcoming me to this wonderful space. And again, thank you for holding space for me for so, so long. I really, you know, as I get more and more in my clinical practice, it becomes clearer and clearer to me how pervasive trauma is. And I, I think so many of our problems personally, interpersonally, culturally are related to trauma. And there are, as you said beautifully, like big T traumas. We know that there are natural disasters, war, and that's actually where the literature on post-traumatic stress disorder really came from, which is from World War II. So the field really came out of understanding big experiences that happen to people. And it's only been in the last, you know, 20 years or so where we understand and have the technology to understand, to see in more into the brain and understand about neuroplasticity, which is how the brain changes over time based on environment, that we're beginning to understand the power of what we call little t traumas. And the research is really interesting. I was so interested in natural disasters and war and post-traumatic stress disorder. And as a grad student, I actually did my dissertation looking at the effects of children who were in a school near where the towers fell on 9-11. And so I've done a lot of research on this and people really do bounce back. Most people bounce back very well from big T traumas. So, so much of our literature we think is about the big T traumas, but actually we have much better data that people heal from that than from these smaller T traumas which are things that are more likely to be chronic. For example, emotional neglect, which has a huge range from, you know, parents really being so preoccupied with their own anxiety and their own struggle that they're unable to meet their child in the moment. And this is chronic. So for all the parents out there thinking, oh my God, this morning, my kid asked me something and I was on my phone. Like it's not a one-time thing. It's this kind of chronic neglect that that impacts us and how we relate to ourselves and other people and in our culture. But I've learned even more recently, and I know you know this, and this is what so much of your podcast is about, is it impacts how we think, how we behave, but it also impacts us on a physiological level. We actually have different neurotransmitters and different neurochemicals that are flowing in our body when we've had that kind of experience. So you know, very often in my clinical practice, people will say, I had a, you know, my parents were great. 
I had a good childhood. I don't know why I'm having all these problems. And it takes us a long time. And people need to understand this is a patient, slow process of understanding what might be impacting you that you of course didn't think was impacting you. Because one of the powerful things about trauma that I just think is so amazing is that our body has these amazing coping mechanisms to manage when things are out of control. One is, I I like this phrase, like the built-in forgetter. So this forgetting what it was like or sweeping it under the rug or saying everything was okay, that was really, really adaptive and needs to be praised because when you're young or when you're in a traumatic experience, like sounding the alarm is not possible. That that would be dangerous and that put your life in danger. So you have to do whatever you can to save your life. And so then when you're safe, you're still using those coping mechanisms that you use when your life was in danger. So it takes time to be able to release and let go of those coping mechanisms, which are thoughts, behaviors, and physiological symptoms. Mm-mm. I just give you a very long answer. <laughs> no, I could, I could listen to you go on and on because you said it so eloquently, you know, about how these seemingly small things and they're happening again and again, not that one time that we weren't there for our kid, but just that. And I think absence and lack is a cause of trauma that a lot of people don't think about. So we think about it like what happened, but what wasn't there is sometimes as important. Absolutely. There's a book that my team and I just finished reading. It's called Complex PTSD by Peter Walker. I really recommend it to you and to your audience. And it's, there's a whole chapter about the absence, exactly what you said and how powerful and impactful that is on your nervous system, on your thoughts, on your behaviors. But of course it's hard to access. Like how do you access, what's so interesting is you can't know what you didn't have unless you start having it and feel the difference. But Mm. because so many of us repeat what we know because the devil we know is better than the devil we don't. Like we will all continue to be doing the same things that we always know. We don't always get the counter information. In fact, we get the same, we get the confirming information. So we weren't really seen or heard in our childhood. We were kind of, let's say, for example, needing to be really resilient, really independent. And people were always praising us, look at her. She could do this all by herself. I'm using her and she's got it all together. And then you, she finds herself in a relationship with someone who is also not that emotionally available and requires her to do things all on her own. And so that just continues and confirms that's how people are. That's how people are in this world without, with missing this whole other piece of people who might do it a little differently. So that's really the hard part of therapy and individual self-help is that the behaviors we've been doing to keep us safe that we have to release really don't want to go away because they've been keeping us safe. So it's really hard to bring in like the counter experience. That's so well said. And I love how you pointed out how we kind of, we predict the world based on our past experience. And then we end up like repeating that and creating that world. What are some of the other, you mentioned like this kind of forgetfulness as a, mm-hmm. as a modality or practice that our, our body has to help us get through trauma. Are there some other, some others that you could explain? Absolutely. So one, the 
kind of forgetting denial, pushing it under the rug is a really big one so that you can kind of continue on with your life. You know, we are, our only job here on earth is to continue to survive. So we think in the way I teach in my clinic and the way I've been taught is that, you know, we think about people as just doing the best they can to survive. And so when you have a traumatic experience, you're just trying to survive despite the stress that is on you. And so as a young person, it's really important to understand that if you ever challenge the people who are feeding you, clothing you, sending you to school, you are at threat. There's a threat then that you might be, you know, quote unquote killed. I mean, not really, but that you will lose what they are giving you. So it is never smart for an organism, for a young organism to stand up against cruelty to them because that would make them potentially even less safe. So one is really knowing that being quiet and being compliant, and this especially for females, is a survival mechanism. Stay quiet, pretend it's not happening. Those are two. Another one that we talk about in the literature is, which people might've heard of is called dissociation. That is really just kind of pulling yourself out of your body and watching it kind of like it's a movie. So not feeling scared, not feeling angry, just really numbing out so that the pain doesn't penetrate in a way that makes you incapacitated. Because remember, all the nervous system cares about is being able to wake up tomorrow and be fed, clothed, and be able to breathe. So if feeling a feeling or experiencing pain is going to keep you from doing that, you push that away. There's two really interesting coping strategies that we talk about in somatic experiencing. And one is connecting things that you actually don't belong together, but putting them together because they are a symbol of lack of safety. So for example, if you were a child and your parent coming home from work, you didn't know if they were going to be in a good mood or a bad mood and how their their mood was then going to dictate how the whole evening went. Hearing the keys in the door might bring up a desire to show up at the door with a smiley face or a drink for your parent or take their coat so that that kind of someone entering this situation might be connected with people-pleasing, or we sometimes call it fawning. That is another way of staying safe, which is kind of connecting a neutral behavior with a response to keep yourself safe. Mm, That's a really good one. Yeah, that happens a lot. And then you could see how, like, let's say you're in a relationship and that's not happening, right? And you have a partner who, when they come home from work, just likes a little bit of space to change out of it. I mean, no one comes back from work anymore, but like, let's say they did uh, change their clothes, get a little comfortable. And you're like in their face and you're like, what do you need? What do you want? What do you need? And of course you're doing that because that's what worked for you when you were younger. But maybe your partner's like, whoa, you really feel like you're trying to control me or you're intense. And so that's the moment where, oh, walking in the door is actually not a threat. Can you let the person just be there? That is a great example. And I think a lot of people are going to have one of those moments right now. Like, (laughs) oh, I do that, don't I? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, anything in my relationship, when I find my partner say like any kind of, they ask me, why are you doing that? Or you ask, like one thing for me, a big one is like, you asked me that already. My kids say this too. Like I will ask somebody something many times, even if they've answered me. And that for me came from a childhood where 
I just, no one was ever listening. So I just had to kind of like keep asking until somebody maybe answered and they didn't always answer. And so that's just, I mean, it's literally in my nervous system. It's like a twitch or a habit. And so when they first started saying it to me, I would say, because you didn't answer me or you're not listening or whatever it was, I was kind of got defensive. And then I realized, oh, this keeps happening. Like if something keeps happening for you, it's very likely that it's a habitual experience you had growing up. And my experience is a good one, right? Like that's on a big T trauma that people didn't listen to me, but it really did impact how I engage with the rest of the world, assuming people aren't going to listen to me. So then I have to do all these preventative behaviors, which to me seem like the way to get my need met, but could also be really annoying to someone. Wow. Yeah. So how do we figure this out? We kind of look at what things keep coming up. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, especially in relationships, like what's the, you know, like I always think like, what's the common denominator? Hmm. You know, like I've heard that, you know, my partners mentioned this or my, or in a number of jobs, I've had this feedback. And I think what's really important is to be deeply compassionate. I mean, this is why when people come into my office, let's say they have really severe obsessive compulsive disorder and they have so much shame around it. And I will just first say, this was so smart for you. Like for whatever reason, like having these compulsions, you needed them. They worked. They're not working anymore because you're here and you want to be relieved of them, but they worked for you. You really have to give yourself so much compassion first. So not like, oh my God, look at me. I'm the worst because I'm doing this behavior. Start with compassion because nothing will shift if there isn't compassion. So first think like, and I usually just kind of put my hand on my heart and say like, oh honey, oof, like you're having a hard time. <laughs> like you're, you're doing that thing, this thing again. And then what I usually ask myself is, what do you actually need? What are you trying to get? So in that example of someone walking in the door, you're trying to get the feeling of safety, that the rest of the night is going to be safe and comfortable. And so I would ask like, what's a better way to try to understand that? Maybe think about what it's been like for the last you know, 12 nights. Has it been safe? Has it been consistent to kind of bring in some concrete data? Because that helps us stay in the now. Because what happens in those moments, and everyone's probably heard these words, is you have a little flashback. You flash back to that other experience and you apply it now. And it feels very rational. So these experiences are not like, I mean, that's why it sometimes takes for me too, like someone to be like, what's happening here? Like someone to kind of shake me out of it. So I'd say the first step is to be really compassionate. Then it's asking yourself what you need. And then reminding yourself, one of the things I do all the time is just say to myself, this is now. That was then. This is now. Hmm. I am an adult. Like I sometimes I'll say, this is 2022. We are here in 2022. We're not in, you know, 1979 or whatever it was. I just really have to ground in the now. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, we can just go back to those teenager childhood behavior mm-hmm. so quickly. So quickly. And I think, yeah, definitely. And then I also think like, when you say, what do you need? Like sometimes those like angry, angsty parts of us like need to be able to like go punch a pillow. Like, you know, we need to allow those parts, especially if we grew up in homes where we couldn't have all of that. We need to let those parts have what they need, just not have it in the relationship. Yeah. Like, what do I need right now? that I'm trying Mm -hmm. to get from this like other person or from acting out that I might be able to give to myself. Yes. 
And that's really the crux of especially emotional neglect is that nobody ever said, hey, sweet pea, what's going on? Do you need this? Do you need this? So we have to really develop that ourselves. And of course, it's not going to come right to us. Like it's a practice. Yeah. Just remembering to stop and ask that question or even just asking like, am I hungry right now? Am I tired? <laughs> like what's happening? Exactly. Well, well, that's one of the, one of the ways that like this, that really helped me with this was practicing yoga with you because it was this moment of, oh, how does my leg feel? Oh, how does my hip feel? Because you, even before you can, I guess, know what you need, you have to know you exist. Mm. Yeah. Like feeling your body below the head. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, wow. You know, and maybe even noticing, oh, when somebody comes in the door, my heart sinks a bit or my stomach starts growling or whatever it is, just noticing that you are a being having an experience. Yes. Having a whole body experience and mm -hmm. our bodies reacting before we even make sense of it to those stimuli, someone walking in the room, small sound, a, a flash of light all the time, all the information that we're getting from all our senses. All the time. And one of the things that I've learned so much is that helps so much with trauma work. And you probably learned this in the somatic work as well, is just slowing down that trauma is fast, you know, it's fast, quick, unexpected, and healing is slow. And so the slower that you can do, and even if you can't yet be the person who doesn't meet your partner at the door, if you just walked there a little slower, mm -hmm. like just bringing any slowness, it'll trigger the parasympathetic nervous system and get you out of the sympathetic nervous system. It'll do a lot physiologically for you, even if you don't buy it. So that's something also that's really important, this power of acting as if. Like you don't have to believe that your night's gonna be safe if you don't check in with the person when they come in, but you can act as if you do, and then you can start gathering evidence and that will be something different than what you've experienced before. And as I said earlier, that's really what we lack when we keep doing what we've always done from the trauma response. Yeah. Yeah. Two things that came to mind as you're speaking. One is the the slowing down. And I really like what they taught in the somatic attachment course is about like, if you do a certain action with your arms and your hands mm -hmm. or your body, every, every time that's kind of, you're doing it unconsciously and you make mm -hmm. it conscious and you don't have to stop doing it, but you actually really do it. You really slow it down, really feel mm -hmm. your body doing it, what it's wanting to feel from making that action. Yeah. It's, it's your body communicating with you that it, it needs something. I mean, when we feel so many of my clients, you know, I'll say, well, how does that feel in your body? And they'll say, I feel tightness in my chest. And I'll say, okay, let's just, can we sit with that for a minute? And then I'll ask them what their chest wants. And mm -hmm. some people, you know, want to stretch out. Someone the other day said to me, well, I have this image of a log that's just going straight into my chest. And I have the desire to take like garden shears and just cut it. But I, but I'm too afraid. And I said, great, let's just sit with that. Can you feel your hands on the shears and not, not actually cut it? And we just slowly used his body's experience to get him what he needed. I had no idea hmm. what he needed. That all came from him. Your body has so much, so much wisdom in it. 
It's just that when we've been traumatized, as I, like we dissociate, we forget, we really, really, really disconnect from our body. That brings me to a question that I had for you, Dr. Mm. Cohen, about when you're when you're seeing patients, how are you combining the talk therapy and the somatics and the other? I mean, I feel like you have so many um, specialties, <laughs> and so mm. you give us a hint of it. But I'm curious how you're combining all that when you're actually seeing a patient that's been through trauma. Yeah, I think it's really important if anyone's listening who's thinking about getting more training or a new clinician or, you know, there's so many wonderful, beautiful modalities to use with people. So many beautiful ways to weave in thoughts and feelings and physiology. And at least when I was in grad school now, 25 years ago, we always had reviewed this study and I'm sure there's more about what they call universal factors that the factors that make most change, like 75% of change, maybe it was 68% of change is a holding space, validation, empathy, encouragement, like these, these non, non-specific, non-theoretical orientation pieces. And so I always start with the idea that I have a huge menu because of my experience of things that I can use with people. And I... Also, there's a beautiful book called My Grandmother's Hands. I know you've read that. Oh, um, I love that book. Uh, by Resma <laughs> Manikim. And he talks about how people come to psychotherapy to sit with another regulated nervous system. Mm-hmm. Like that is, and I, I think about that all the time. I regulate myself first and somewhat like a spiritual practice, I trust that the right intervention, not right is the wrong word. The intervention that might guide somebody at some point will come. I also, because I've been doing this work for long enough, I can feel in my body when there's activation in the nervous system of the client, even over zoom. And when things get too heady, when we're like analyzing too much and we're talking too much. And then just as that example, I will kind of bring it back to the body. Mm. Also, this is a like full disclosure. When I don't know what next to do next, which still happens to me because I'm human, I'll say, what does that feel like in your body? And it'll just be, it'll get us out of this kind of like, I think I don't know what to do next in times where there becomes this power dynamic where someone's like asking a lot of me or wanting a fix or, mm-hmm. and that's just, that's probably a trauma, you know, enactment happening. So I just bring it right back to the body. Now I do have clients who have a really difficult time knowing what's in their body, but the cool thing in somatic work is that you can use images, you can use meaning, you can use affect. And most people, the other thing that I sometimes do is I'll say, I don't know if this is your body or my body, but I'm feeling this like tightness around my throat. Mm -hmm. And even if they say no, that means they took a moment to check in with their throat. I love that. That's so good. (laughs) Yeah. That is so good. And I don't think you're supposed to have all the answers, right? I mean, the answers are are inside of the individual. So exactly. And if there's this, if that starts becoming an issue, that's, you know, part of what this person is expecting. I think in my somatic teacher talked about therapists being like water, that when water is flowing in a stream and it comes a along a rock, it doesn't like try to push the rock out of the way. 
It just goes around the rock. And Mm. that is as a therapist, my job is to be like water. If I, you know, I say something, the suggestion isn't like, no, that doesn't fit. We go the other way. Like it's very, you know, fluid. And one of the things also is that I always ask, because I know we're talking with your mind, but also with your body permission. And I know that's a big piece that I always felt certainly in yoga is the permission to connect the permission to connect to your body, which for many people who let's say had intrusive parents or sexual or physical abuse were never asked permission to step into your, your space. Yes, that's really big. And that's something that I teach when I'm training the yoga teachers and trauma sensitivity is all about, you know, that consent and again and again to ask permission and to let the student lead. Yeah. It's so healing because it's the being able, it's being asked, which is a healing experience of someone asking and then the being able to answer Mm. and then noticing how that answer resonated. I know for me, sometimes I say, oh yeah, sure, sure. And then I, and then I'd feel it. And I think, oh, that didn't actually want that, but that's all information. Yes. And so you're giving them so much, such an opportunity for information and integration, I think. Yes. And then asking, how did that yes feel in your body? (laughs) And then then knowing that you have this something I said to my daughter all the time, oh, you changed your mind, like really helping her to note that and understand that that's okay. And that happens. Yeah, that's beautiful. And to not get caught up in the rigidity of there's one way. And that I don't know, like I have to try this. And then if I I don't like it, okay, then I've learned from that. I mean, we only learn from feeling into what feels good and what doesn't feel good. I mean, the things I've learned the most from have been things that came from mistakes. But again, if you, you know, just to say, like, if you've been from a have you experienced trauma? This is another coping, like never making a mistake. Perfectionism Mm, is a huge response to trauma, right? So like never making a mistake, never, that's a way to keep yourself safe because then no one will ever see you, call you out. Like you'll never have that experience that you were so afraid of in your life. It's a huge one, yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot of that (laughs) to take this a little bit like broader in society. Aren't you seeing that, that that perfectionism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean- you know, I think it's really important to state that, um, you know, we are still in it, but we have been going through an existential trauma. I mean, anyone who doesn't, I worry a lot when people don't acknowledge the trauma of the last two years of COVID. I mean, we'll talk about the, I can talk about the other traumas as well, which is piling on other people from, let's say from systemically oppressed groups who have trauma. It's not like trauma wipes out one and the other. It's not plus one, minus one. It's like plus one, plus another, plus another. And so we are weighted down with trauma and many people are dissociating and not allowing their bodies to feel the fear, the uncertainty, all of that. I mean, I I think a lot of the friction that has happened around COVID is people having different responses to trauma. And we deeply need time to heal from this. I mean, we're not even out of it. I mean, we're out of it a little, but we're not out of, I kept saying last year for when I was interviewed that people start healing from a car accident, you know, once they've been discharged from the hospital, like we were, the cars were still hitting each other. Like maybe now we're like in the hospital, but we're not home yet. 
And so we're still actively in it. And anyone who is either denying that experience or denying, like a lot of times clients will say like, why? And throughout COVID, like, why am I having such a hard time? Like I'm safe. I didn't lose my job. And yes, there are people who have it more difficult than you, but it doesn't mean your experience of what we've been living through isn't affecting you deeply. I mean, obviously suicides are on the rise. Substance use is on the rise. Mm -hmm. I work with teenagers. I mean, we get calls for teenagers all the time. I mean, people are really, really struggling and it's appropriate. I'm so grateful that people are getting help, but we're seeing this like reaction to trauma so much. And I think, you know, one of the ways I, you said the perfectionism that's on the rise, I can say that one of the things I realized the way that I coped with the trauma of at least the shutdown part and the last two years for me was to work. Like I just worked and worked and worked because it was the only thing I could control. And now I'm finding, and a couple of my colleagues have said the same thing. I don't want to work at all. Like I'm yeah. having that exactly what people do, which is like yeah. too much, just cope and then want to let go of it completely. And so we all needed to find a way to get through. So I just, I think it's so important to know that. And that we also, so we have trauma. We haven't talked about this yet either, but there's a, there's so much data supporting that there's intergenerational trauma as well. So I'll have clients who, you know, I'll always remember this client I had whose father is a Holocaust survivor and she lived in Westchester. And she said like, why do I walk around? You know, I don't know what Ardsley or whatever. Um, and think like a murderer is going to jump out of the bushes. You know, why do I like every moment just think something terrible is going to happen to me? And we spend a lot of time talking about how she carried this, the trauma that she didn't even experience in her body and in her genes that her dad experienced. And so she really needed to heal herself as if she had been there. And obviously for black people, that is happened. That's their experience as well. They hold the intergenerational trauma of, of their ancestors who were slaves and kidnapped from their country. So this, you know, there's, there's this trauma we're going through. There's intergenerational trauma, there's childhood trauma. You know, we really need to be understanding and patient with ourselves because if we don't heal, I always say like a come out sideways, you know, like we, we get same thing. Like we get mad at our partner instead of realizing that we're feeling abandoned. Like we mm -hmm. just put it out. You know, we're so much more likely to put it out on somebody else. Yeah, Liz, I've, I've heard you speak on a couple of podcasts during COVID. I think you, you mm -hmm. during, we're still in it, as you said, but during maybe some of the kind of peak fearful times. And I wonder, yeah, where, if you have a sense of where you think we are, with COVID uh -huh. and our trauma response, if we're going to still be seeing the, the, you know, the fallout from this in ourselves and our teens in this year and years to come, and also how you would compare this since you mentioned that you, you worked so closely after 9-11, uh -huh. which was a very different kind of trauma. Maybe you could speak to, you know, what we're going to see and how those two traumas are different. Great question, Laura. Um, so one of the things I just want to say about teens is I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of freshmen. I actually have a daughter who's a freshman. So a lot of 14, 15 year olds, and at least in New York city, which is where I'm based. And I've been thinking a lot about it and talking to some colleagues and we all look back. So these kids had shut down uh, second semester, seventh grade. And then in at least in New York, didn't really go back until ninth grade. And we all think about middle school and we're like, oh my God, we hated middle school so hard socially. And that is true. And it gave us that 
resiliency muscle, the kind of social resiliency muscle, you know, you came home hysterical about a friend. It was just, it was hard, really hard, but through hard things, we do build resilience. And these kids missed all of that. They really missed developmentally. It's such an important developmental stage between 11 and 15 and 12 and 14. It's very, very important developmentally. And then they're plopped into this place. And a lot of them have these bodies of the 15 year olds, but they're, you know, internally, much younger and have had so much social isolation. So I think there's going to be a lot of emotional, especially for that age, a lot of emotional catch up, a lot of having to build that resiliency, not isolate as like a, as a number one strategy. I mean, just cause that's what they did. Like when things got difficult, they just, everything shut down to really reach out to people I mean, I think everybody, but I've just been noticing this a lot in my practice for that age. I was listening to Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson talking on a podcast and they said something so smart. You know, of course, when we shut down schools, you know, we had no idea what the heck we were doing. Like we were just a mess, right? And so people say to kids, young kids too, like we can't go to school. School isn't safe. We can't go to school because school isn't safe. And we kept saying that. And self-talk or talk is hypnosis. Mm. So this association that like school isn't safe or the subway isn't safe, like that things aren't safe. That's the word that the nervous system hears, as I said, and it's like, "Uh uh-uh, like, uh uh-uh, like there's a threat. And so then everyone's so surprised at why so many people are like, you know, fighting about masks in school. It's like, because we set up this space that it's not safe and people are terrified. So I think this kind of sensation that, there's fear out there. And what was very hard about COVID is that it was an invisible existential threat. So you couldn't see it. It Took a long time to even figure out how it was transmitted and that it could really, really hurt you. And so I think that what we're going to see is a real need to process what we went through. I mean, my concern is that everyone's like, it's over or what, like I'm over it or whatever it is. And like, that's fine. I totally understand that. I am very over it myself, but I have to deal with personally, like what it felt like. So sometimes like for me or in March, I always have this kind of memory of what it felt like to evacuate our apartment in New York and go to our other home. Like I just try to remember what it felt like and just kind of soothe myself around the fear. So I think people are bypassing the fear and the experience. And when we push any feeling down, I'm afraid it comes out sideways. So I just worry about like, I don't know if there'll be anything in particular that I would see, but just more of this like um, displacement behavior, like more getting angry at other people, like less taking responsibility, less self-reflection. I heard someone in the beginning of the pandemic, a healer say, what if they, when they said, stay home, we chose to hear that as come home to ourselves, Mm -hmm. like take the time. I know you really did that. I really did that. I really took it as a time to figure out, to sit with myself and figure out what was next and where, where I was going. In addition to, you know, coping with working too much. So I think it's going to be, unfortunately, a focus, more of a focus on the external world and less of a focus on internal is my concern. Yeah. I see, I see that there are definitely people in my life. I can see that are not processing what happened. And I can see that as an overall trend um, that 
we can assume we got through it. We're okay. And, and forget that a lot of stuff happened that we, we might want to just stop. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And just put our hand on our heart and say, Oh gosh, that was so hard. I just went away for my first vacation and I noticed my body just like melting in the relaxation. And I had to say, Oh my gosh, you have been so tense. Like Mm. I didn't even realize how tense your body has been. My body has been until I was able to relax it. And I just, I cried. I just cried for myself for what, for how hard it's been. And I cry for, you know, and I let my kids cry when they, this is the other thing, when kids or people want to reflect on it and people are like, oh, it's over. Don't be so, whatever. It wasn't so bad. Like, please, like you just need to let it, you need to talk about how hard it was. Like it was horrible. (laughs) Like it's not as bad now, but it was horrible. Like suddenly this, it was terrible. Like, let's just allow ourselves to feel that it's not going to hurt us. And I think this idea of like switching from internal to external relates to your second question about 9-11. I mean, I think unfortunately the similar thing is that we then started hating other people and Mm. started externalizing. I mean, we went to, you know, we went into a war. I mean, that's how much we were like, this is not, you know, not something about us or something as a country that we need to do differently or so our, our history with these Middle Eastern, co- like we didn't do any internal reflection. We just totally were external. I think also such an opportunity. I heard someone say that we should have like a day of healing as a national holiday. What's so attractive about that is that we've all been through it. You know, 9-11 you know, one of the ways that one of the other ways that we minimize trauma is like, well, it wasn't so bad for me. It's worse for other people. And I work with a lot of people who were here on 9-11 and they'll say, well, I wasn't in the tower. You know, I mean, they like literally fled the tower, but they didn't, you know, weren't in the tower. It's like, you always can find someone who has it worse than you. And that's a trauma response of like not saying it was hard for you either. So I think it's really important for people to just own how hard things are. And doesn't mean you're never going to get out of bed. It doesn't mean you're never going to feel better. In fact, it means you can then step into the next chapter of your life instead of still holding on to that anger and grief and sadness. That's another huge emotion that I really had to sit with, which was grief about the time. Just this grief about what we lost, the time we lost, the people we lost, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Liz. And I'm thinking about, and you talked about, you know, we said the schools were unsafe and, you know, of course, all these public spaces where we came together were unsafe. And one of those was yoga studios. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, I guess a couple questions are kind of melding together and maybe we can, we can pull them apart together. I've been wanting to go back to what you spoke about earlier, which is about that you self-regulate your own nervous system before you meet mm-hmm. with your patients. And I know that yoga is part of the way. I, I imagine there are other ways and I'd love to hear them. I know that your thriving yoga practice is is one of the tools that you use for regulating your nervous system and processing some of your own stuff. And I would love to take some time to just talk about how yoga fits into your life. And then also, of course, do we see ourselves coming back into a, a group yoga space? And <laughs> So a lot in there. I don't know which direction you'd like to go first. Yeah, no, I'd love to talk about how it helps regulate my nervous system. You know, I think my relationship to yoga has, like everything, has shifted over time. I started doing yoga. Um, <laughs> this is very 
symbolic of me in response to taking a very intensive kickboxing class. So I took a very intensive kickboxing class and started feeling really tight and thought, oh, yoga will help me open up and stretch. And then with your beautiful guidance, realized that it wasn't just about stretching and it wasn't a counter to something hard, (laughs) that in and of itself, it was this alive experience of my body that I could bring to myself, that just by moving and breathing and focusing, I could have an experience in my body that I couldn't have anywhere else. And for me, it was beginning of just knowing I had a body. That was really how it started. Noticing that I had a breath, noticing, I remember you teaching me, you know, to breathe into places that felt tight. So that was, of course, like first, like noticing something was tight then relating to it by breathing into it, then noticing if there was a change. So many of these subtle like pieces of attention to myself that really slowly helped me connect to my being or my essence is is what I can say. And just knowing that I was a body in movement and flow in breath, and then what started happening was I would just have these really like huge releases of emotions during yoga. For me in particular, two things would happen. One is I would have these really strong memories that would come to me in a certain pose. And instead of trying to analyze them, which is like what I do in my regular life, I would just notice them and just say, oh, hello, you know, you're here. This is so interesting. And then move on to the next asana and And then I started having like tears come for me. A lot of times it's when I'm um, twisting, doing things with my hips. And many times in the end of the practice in Shavasana, I would have this movement that I would, I ended up learning when I did other healing practices. It was like a crying kind of sobbing inside, but I wasn't crying. It was this kind of chest heaving and arching of my back after the practice. And I I had enough healing and I felt safe enough in the space to just let it be. And I knew it just was something that needed to move through me. And I didn't even know what it was or how, what it meant, but it, I'm so grateful for yoga because all the other healing modalities, if I've done meditation or if I've done breath work or which I do, or I've done, uh, or I do Reiki or if I do psilocybin, which we can talk about. Um, I have that same experience. Like I know it because of my yoga experience. Like I, I know it because that is a piece of something that I have been releasing. And so the yo- yoga was the first place that I got to know my body in any way. And then the first place I started really healing these deep physiological trauma responses, I, I think. And now, you know, it is my, I mean, it is like you know, flossing my teeth. And I probably do yoga way more than I floss my teeth. Like, mm. you know, I have a five day practice where I can feel the days I don't practice. Like I, it is a mental flossing. It is a mental, emotional, full body moving through. And I've had the experience I've shared with Laura so many times. It's funny, it's happening less now, maybe because I've been doing this more, but where I'd be like, wake up with some problem. And I think, oh, and I think just get on the mat, just do it. And you know, and through the mat, experience, the answer would come to me. Like it was just miraculous. Like I just turned it over, got back into my body and it became really clear what to do. So I think it's just helped me so much 
to get more connected to my body. And also, you know, having such a, having a daily practice, you know, some days I'm tight. I just did something to my back. Like I know I'm going to be back. So it's like, if I have a bad session, like with a client, I know tomorrow will be better. Like, it's just also this, just like meditation, just this practice that you return to that everything doesn't feel so important and so catastrophic. There'll always be, you know, another breath. (laughs) Mm. That's, that's, I know that yoga has been such a big uh, part of your personal process. And I'm, I'm so happy that I've been able to be on a part of that with you. Well, not only were you a part of it with me, Laura, but I think if you hadn't taught my Sarashtanga, if you weren't who you were, I wouldn't have continued. Like it wasn't mm. just the practice, especially in the beginning. It was you. It was the space you held for all of us. And it was really, really special. And that brings us to the next question. I mean, I also worked with you over Zoom and also completely felt that space and held and in a container. So, but there is something about a community of people coming together. I mean, there's this other data that I read an article recently. There was a study where they put heart monitors on people at the, this is before COVID, um, at the New York Philharmonic, I think it was, or the opera or something. And they, all the heartbeats, once the music started about 15 minutes in it, were regulating at the same time. Like there was co-regulation, the whole room. And so that I meant, you know, that is something that you can't put your finger on. I'm sure as a teacher, you feel that that is something that I, that I miss from the practice for sure in the space. Yeah. Being together in the room together and it's coming back. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see how much that group exercise and group yoga. And I think people want to be together, have their bodies in space together. Mm -hmm. And some folks feel fearful of that and, or have Mm -hmm. found, you know, the benefits of practicing from home, not having any commute. Yeah. So maybe things will be more hybrid in the, in the future. Yeah. I found it a lot easier to have clients because I always recommend, as you know, (laughs) yoga to my clients to commit to that with it being remote. Like I do think there's this kind of resistance that the remote gets rid of. (laughs) I'll just try it. I think, you know, Yeah, I think, but I do think there's something, I think it's also going to take time. I mean, I have it too of, uh, I don't know if I want to do something in person and then I do it and it's so nice, but we have to realize we've been told for so long that also that other people, I mean, for adults, that other people aren't safe, right? I mean, we stood six feet apart from people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's going to take a long time. (laughs) It's going to take a long time. Like, you know, chanting Om in a room, you know, that's going to take a long time and that's okay. Like, there's so much shame around not being ready or not being faster wherever you're supposed to be. But accepting where you are, that's what moves you. I mean, it's just like yoga, right? Accepting where you are is what moves you, not pushing against something and pushing against yourself. Well, I couldn't think of a better concluding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't want to totally conclude because I do want to ask you just to share a little bit, if you'd like, about, and you you work with teens, as you spoke about, um, (laughs) but I know you have a specialty in folks moving through divorce. Yeah. And I know that there's been a lot of extra trauma around that during this time as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to give you some space to speak to that. If you'd like to share anything about that with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. um, When I started doing the divorce work, you know, all this comes together, you know, life, this is how it works, right? Just like you can't, 
can't do an asana and then seven years later you can, right? <laughs> you yeah. just little pieces come together. You know, I wanted to do something different. I, I wanted to teach um, online and I couldn't figure out a topic. There were a lot of topics I could teach on. And so at the same time I was doing all this trauma work, I decided because of my personal experience of having healed through a really difficult divorce with very young kids that I wanted to help teach and inspire people that life didn't have to be terrible after divorce. I mean, we still have the stigma even in 2022 that you're broken or your life is over. And I didn't realize until a couple of years ago that that work of course overlapped, that divorce is a trauma. And I was simply teaching people how to move through a trauma. And the work I do is all focused, you know, so much of divorce, divorce experience and what we hear about it is the, the individual, like me focusing on my ex. And all of my work is exactly what we've been talking about here today, which is focusing on you. And what do you need to heal? What do you need to, you know, what does your body and heart and mind need? Because the other person will never change. And so I realize it's a cult, you know, coalesced trauma and the divorce work. And I, I also watching people go through the divorce and, and go through the other side is just so inspiring because people are like, you know, I always say it's such a brave act to say that something isn't working or accept that it's something isn't working for another person. We have it all backwards. We have this idea that like sticking it out is what's important. I mean, it's very, you can have an analogy with yoga, right? It's like, you can't push. Like if it's not working, you'll try the pose tomorrow. And so letting go of what's not working, I think is an incredibly brave move. So that's why I love that work. Yeah, I think that you have, there's still so much stigma around divorce in our country. Mm -hmm. And I think you've, you've really like moved the dial on that one to celebrate knowing what's right for you. And like you said, celebrate being able to say when something's not working. And, you know, I, even though I'm pretty still newly married, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I read your book and I found like, we've talked about that your book is, it's so universal and what it teaches about listening to yourself and moving mm. through change and asking the right questions that it's great for anyone. Yeah. And are you still giving your course online? Yeah. So I have, um, one of the, my favorite courses to talk about, I have two. One is it's a quick masterclass about the three things to do when you're going through a divorce to not screw up your kids. Cause a lot of people worry about, I mean, that's one of the main reasons people stay because they worry about messing up their kids. And that is not like a hundred percent guarantee. There are so many things you can do. And so I have a, a really good class on that. And then I also have a course for people going through a divorce that walks you through. It's essentially like walking through therapy with me and having tools and strategies to manage that time. And you also get contact with me. And so all of that's on my website. And that's available. And I have a podcast called the Divorce Doctor Podcast, which is a very, very, very special to my heart. I started it because when I was going through a divorce, all I heard, and maybe people can relate to this, um, were like the terrible stories. Like, you know, that's all anyone talked about were the divorces that were horrible. And I didn't hear about anyone who was thriving after and living through it. And I, I have been blessed by having women and men come and talk about their experience and just share their stories, just more stories. So it's really powerful. It's a great great gift, I think, to people going through the process. And we'll link all of that um, in the show notes. Your course is called Glow. Is it Glow? It's called Afterglow. Yeah. The light, the light at the other side of divorce. Yep. <laughs> and your book. Yeah. My book is based on that. It's called The Light at the Other Side of the Divorce, Discovering the New You. And that's 
really great. I've had some people tell me that they take it like to a hotel for the weekend and kind of treat it like a retreat, which I loved. So you can use it in any way. And as you said, like it's moving through anything challenging. I mean, the examples I use are divorce, but they're all cognitive behavioral therapy tools, somatic tools, mindfulness-based stress reduction tools to just having a you know more fulfilling experience on this planet. So good, Dr. Cohen. Uh, you really bring it all together. You're one of those people for me that, first of all, you're just walking it. It's being in your presence is a wonderful gift. And then the way you respond, I just see, you know, from being a, a practitioner myself, I just learned, I'm like, wow, she pulled from here. She pulled from here. So I can really like feel all your, all your training and your expertise. And it's, it's really quite wide, you know, as well as being specific. So I just think you're, um, you're such a great example for us. You brought so much, so many gems into this conversation. I'll have to have you back on to talk to us some more about, I mean, your insights on trauma and trauma healing. I feel like we could, we could go on for quite some time. We could talk forever. I would love that. And I, I love being in your presence, Laura. And I'm, thank you for what you said. I really am taking that in and letting that sit in my nervous system. And one of the things also about trauma is taking in the good, right? And not just deflecting it. So one of the things they say when people give me a compliment is, yes, it's true. That yes. is all true. Thank you. Thank you for seeing that. And thank you for witnessing me and holding space for me for all these years, many years now, um, to help me get to this space. So thank you. And I'm, I'd love to be come back and I, I love speaking with your audience. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.